morning, church. Uh, so glad you're here with us, whether is it uh, on-site or online, those joining us online. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is uh, Tim Chiang. I'm one of the pastoral workers here at St. Mary's. And today, we're continuing our series in 2 Samuel by looking at chapter 6, the whole of chapter 6. Um, let's begin with the word of prayer. Almighty God, you are the Lord of the universe. You alone are the creator God, and there is none like you. You alone deserve all honor and glory and praise. You alone are holy and perfect, righteous in all that you do. We love you and we adore you. Help us to humbly receive from you the words of life that we may rightly know you and serve you today and always. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So recently, we celebrated my son's uh, sixth birthday, uh, and he wanted to light the candles. He wanted to hold the lighter and light it. Now, being a six-year-old, we were very cautious. We were understandably nervous. We needed to emphasize to him the, the danger to approach fire with the right attitude. Because while fire is responsible for many things, in fact, some will even credit uh, fire with the beginning of human civilization. With fire, we created tools. With fire, we can cook food. With fire, we have light to not be constricted to just the moments of days and night. It is fire that that does done so many good. However, we are aware of the destructive properties and the harm and the volatility of fire if it's not controlled properly. So I needed to tell my six-year-old son to be careful of the flame. And we would not have proceeded if he did not have a little bit of fear trembling as he held the lighter, right? If he was just, oh, okay, just give me that. I'm going to light it right out. We would have stopped him immediately, isn't it? Because we need to approach uh, fire with the right attitude. If not, we'll be destroyed. Now, in the Bible, God is described as a consuming fire. Not that God is destructive or volatile, but that he is holy. That the holiness of God is described as a purifying fire. So as metal workers would know, to purify gold or silver, there is no substitute but fire, the furnace of heat, to melt it all down to be in its substituent parts. And that's the image that the Bible uses to describe God as a consuming fire, that he is holy, that God is perfectly right, and that his, his, his righteousness is active, is consuming, and is good because Every bit of impurity, unrighteousness, evil cannot stand, will be consumed, utterly destroyed in God's presence. And we should celebrate in that fact. Because when we look out there, in all that, 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 that grieves us in this world, the greed, the corruption, the selfishness that exists in the world today, that's the cause of so much destruction and, and pain and suffering, we should desire that one day God would cleanse it with His holy fire and make everything anew, everything pure, that death and suffering and disease and all the things of sin would be no more. And that is the picture of holy fire. And with care, many times in the Old Testament, approaching God, such a holy God, who is such a consuming holy fire, uh, that we need, they, the, the Old Testament advocates a right attitude to be approaching God because we are not holy. If God was a flame, we are utterly flammable. 
because of our unrighteousness, we cannot stand before a holy God. And that's the reality. Now, why have I chosen this title, Approaching the Holy God Rightly? It's because today is a passage about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is the Ark? The Ark is basically it's just a wooden box made of acacia wood, uh, measuring about 130 cm uh, lengthwise and width and heightwise 80 cm by 80 cm. So it's a square that's elongated box. And this box is overlaid with pure gold. So it appears gold, right? And inside the box is a copy of the stone tablets that God wrote. And on top of that box is a covering of pure gold with two cherubim, two throne guardians, heavenly beings facing one another. And this ark, this uh, religious relic, is a symbol of God's presence. That in Exodus we read, it is God who speaks through the ark. That God who is enthroned between the cherubim. That the ark, this, this, this item, has become symbolic for God's holy presence. And there's many tragedies related to the ark as well. And the earliest one that we read to that's relevant to our passage today is in the previous book in 1 Samuel chapter 4. What happened? The Israelites, foolishly thinking that with this relic they have God's blessing, went to war with the Philistines, even though God's favour was not with them. They were defeated and the ark was captured by a foreign army. Disaster, isn't it? But what do we read in 1 Samuel chapter 6? God single-handedly defeated the Philistines. When the Philistines took the Ark of the Lord and brought it before their temple, before their God, before Dagon, their God, God caused that idol to topple and shatter to pieces before him. And not only that, but God struck the cities of the Philistines with plagues, with diseases, that they were terrified. We can't stand before this God. He will kill us all. So they sent the Ark back. And there's an interesting story that I think is, is relevant. They, they put it on a new, uh, a new cart, an ox cart, that has never been used before, and they put two cows who just gave birth, they have babies at home, the maternal instinct is strong, who have never been under the yoke, and they put them side by side and see if the, uh, the, the cart will go straight to Israel. And guess what? Lo and behold, the cart went straight back to the land of Israel because this was an act of God, not a coincidence. It was God who was striking down the Philistines in his holiness. So it arrives to this place called Beth Shemesh, an Israelite city. And in their rejoicing, they rejoice that the ark has come back. In being carried away in their celebrations, some, we are told, 70 of them looked into the ark, which they're forbidden to do. And 70 of the men of Beth Shemesh were struck dead as well. And again, the people of Beth Shemesh had the same reaction as the Philistines. How can we stand before this holy God? Put it away, put it away. And they sent the ark away to the place called Kiriath-Jerim, where it was taken charge of this guy called Abinadab. And it was taking care of him. And it was in Kiriath-Jerim that the ark remained all till our passage today. So today's passage uh, is broken down into three sections. As you can see, follow in the outline provided. Uh, Approaching God in holy fear, that's in verses 1 to 10. We'll be looking at the next, approaching God in holy joy, 11, uh, verse 11 to 19. And lastly, approaching God in humility, verses 20 to 23. And the main takeaway for us is for us to learn that we rightly draw near to God in humble and joyful fear. So where are we 
where does uh, 2 Samuel 6 place in this narrative? We've seen last week, King David, king over all Israel, now conquers Jerusalem. Of course, with hindsight, we know that Jerusalem is a special city. But back then, it's just a new city that David has conquered. That's called the city of David. That David won a political and military victory at the end of the chapter against the Philistines, isn't it? And now that he set up Jerusalem as his capital, because he desires to honour God, David says to all the people, let's bring God's ark to this place so that our kingdom, our, our nation will be known as the nation of God, under God, to rightly uh, uh, administer and, and live under the rule of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And this seems good to the Israel, uh, Israelites, and that's what they do. So now, with the ark in Jerusalem, Jerusalem not only becomes the city of David, but it truly becomes the holy city. And it remains so to today, a city of significance to all of God's people. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, a bit about what, where the, what was the ark doing all this while? How long was it there in Kiriath Jerim before today's passage? Uh, we, as we, we will see in Psalm 132, it's uh, the psalm of David's search for the ark. It seems that it was lost in time. Why? Because we see in 1 Samuel 7 verse 2 that when the ark was returned from the Philistine capture to Kiriath Jerim, 20 years passed before Samuel leads the nation to revival. And Samuel grew old, and then he anointed Saul. And Saul ruled for 40 years before David became king. And David was ruling at Hebron for seven and a half years. We see this from the previous passage, right? Before he came to reign in Jerusalem and brought the ark to him. Conservatively, at least from the numbers I've just mentioned, that's 67 and a half years. We do not know how long Saul, Samuel was reigning before Saul was anointed. So that gives us a ballpark figure of at least 70 to 90 years that the ark was at Kiriath-Jerim. That's longer than Malaysia was a nation, by the way, right? So the ark was there. And we read further in 1 Chronicles 13 that David says, let us bring the ark back because it was never sought in all the days of Saul. It was lost to time. So in Psalm 132, he rejoices at finding where the, where, where the ark is at. So let's read in verse 1. What does David do? David gathered again all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now we have a place here called Baal Judah. In 1 Chronicles 13, it's clarified for us, Bala, which is Kiriath-Jerim. That's in uh, 1 Chronicles 13, verse uh, 6. So it's the same place, okay? It's not that there's an error in transcription. It's called by two different names. And David gathers a mighty host, not to battle this time, but to bring the ark back. And he, he gets approved. It seems right to all Israel that this is the right thing to do. But please note that God was not inquired in this action. Okay, as we will see. Now, the ark, which was called by the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, right? Adonai Sabaoth, which is the Lord of heaven armies. That's how great and magnificent he is, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And verse 3, we read, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzziah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, with Ahio before the cart before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cassinets and cymbals. 
So all appears fine. The ark is moving. We're celebrating. We're rejoicing because we are, we're bringing God to the center of our uh, kingdom, as it appears. That he celebrates with songs and lyres and harps and castanets and cymbals. So to summarize, it's not an Anglican worship service, right? It's a lot of uh, music and, and, and noise and procession as things go. But disaster strikes in the next verse. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put his hand out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Suddenly, the joyous procession screeches to an abrupt halt because someone just died because of his error. Now, what was this error? You see, for the 70, 90 years that the ark was at Kiriath-Jerim, Uzzah would have grown up with the ark being there. And he should have known better. He should have known the law of the Lord of how the ark was to be handled. You see, the ark had rings on its side, which carried two very long poles, which was meant to be borne by not common people, but specifically by the tribes of the Levites. In fact, when we talked about how foolish the Israelites was about bringing the ark of God to battle in 1 Samuel 4, they did it right. They were foolish, they were wrong to do so, but they did it the right way. They had Levites carry the ark into battle not on a cart. The only other people to put the, ox on, the, the ark on a cart were the Philistines in sending it back because they were pagan, godless pagans. And, and as, as, as good the intention was, let's make a new cart for God, a cart that has not been carried common goods, donkeys, sheep or whatever. No, no, no. This cart is new. So honour God as well as the intention was. It was still an insult to the holy God because the ark was meant to be carried, not put on a cart like an object. And in fact, the fact that the oxen stumbled, many has, has looked at that and saying that this is God's, an act of God to stop that procession, to stop it from proceeding any further, to stop the error from being perpetuated. And, and that's the reaction of David, that he was, and we read here in verse 8, that David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah till this day. I want to make it very clear that while the same word of anger is used in verse 7 and verse 8, while the Lord was angry against, kindled against Uzzah, David burned, yes, but not against God, but because of what happened. That David was vexed, distressed, literally to burn out from inside because of what happened. That we have here, Perez Uzzah, a word we've, we saw last week. Last week, uh, David won a military victory in a place called Baal Perezim, Perez, the same word of breaking out, that the Lord breaks out against, the Lord of breaking out against his enemies. But here today, the Lord broke out against his own people, against Uzzah, in a reversal. So rightly so in verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. So he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now by his name and his uh, identifier, Gittite, he is from the city of Gath. He's not an Israelite. In fact, his name has no, like you would expect of an Israelite name to have elements that worship Yahweh. Here is a servant of Edom. That's what his name literally means. Very rightly so, he is identified as a foreigner. 
So David, so let's just paint the picture here. David knew that he can't bring the ark, the ark to him because he needs to rightly assess where has sin, what, has, what sin has caused this disaster. And that was the right thing to do. So he sent it to this, the house of this guy, this foreigner called Obed-Edom. See what will happen, like a canary in a coal mine. A bit cold of David, I don't know. Um, to, to put this on this foreigner. But it didn't really uh, play out that way, as you'll see in the next section. But before we go there, what have we seen so far? Remember, we are to rightly draw near to God in humble and joyful fear. And in the first principle we learn from this part of the narrative is that we rightly fear God in His holiness. So we've said how God is a consuming fire of purification, that God's fire of wrath against evil is good. In fact, it's the very definition of justice. The desire, the right desire of justice is to see evil destroyed, isn't it? The problem is that in the, in the category of evil that is to be destroyed, we squarely find all of humanity, all of us. In fact, this is what plays out in Isaiah chapter 6. So we have the prophet Isaiah in the first five chapters of his book proclaiming woes upon you, woe upon you because you sin, woe upon you because you, 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 you disobey, woe upon you because you dishonor, the, dishonor God, woe upon these nations, woe upon these cities. And in chapter 6, Isaiah beholds a vision of the throne room of God. He sees the holy of holies, the holiness of God in his throne in heaven. And Isaiah's first words are, woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips dwelling amongst the people who are unclean. We rightly fear God because none of us, even on our best day, and I'm trying to say this in the most loving way possible, brothers and sisters, even on our best day, we are more sinful than we realize. That even our good acts, we, are not, we cannot be sure, never be sure if they're not out of selfishness. That before a holy God, who will consume all impurity. Make no mistake, we will be consumed along with all impurities that no one can stand before a holy God. And that's why we approach Him with fear. We need to approach God with the right attitude, realizing that He is holy, realizing that He does not bear any evil, that we cannot go under presumption before a holy God. But in the next section, we talk about approaching God in holy joy. So what's that about? Let's go on in verse 11. And we see David's test of Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom the Gittite, right? That test, how does it play out in verse 11? And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So for three months, 90 plus days, God blessed this foreigner. Now we're not sure uh, precisely as to how that blessing took place as to what nature was the nature of the blessing. But in Chronicles, in a book written much later, recording the histories of these events, he puts Obed-Edom among the Levites, a foreigner among the priests of God. In fact, he was given tasks and duties before the ark. He was a gatekeeper of the ark, as we read in 1, uh, 1 Chronicles 15. And, and that he's listed among, uh, he's given sacred duties and that he has many, many children. And these were signs of God's blessing upon this man that God graciously, right, uh, brought and blessed this foreigner to him. And this reached the ears of King David, verse 12. It was told to King David, 
the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the Lord. So David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So with God blessing Obed-Edom, David realizes, okay, God is not, does not remain angry with us forever. And this time we, we know that he realizes his error. So in 1 Chronicles 15, this time, the second time David attempts at bringing the ark, he does so uh, the right way. And in, even in 1 Chronicles, it records for us, he, David tells the Levites, he assigns the Levites, carry the ark. Because you didn't do so the first time, the wrath of the Lord broke out against us. So this time, he does it right, and this time, they rightly rejoice. In fact, in verse 13, when those who had borne the ark had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And we'll revisit this later. Verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now, I, when I want to imagine this scene, I tend to imagine football fans celebrating a goal. Now, I'm not into football, but I have friends who are really into it and dragged me at late wee hours in the middle of the night to a mama to watch their football match. And when a goal happens, how do people celebrate? Do they go like, well done, no chap. Well done. No, it's not golf, right? Golf, they, they do that. No, football, football fans, what you do when, 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 when someone scores a goal? If it's your side, of course, you go, goal! You shout, you scream, you hug each other even though you're total strangers. Why? Because it is a cause for celebration that it cannot be done passively. And similarly here, when, when, when the ark of God has come, graciously, David realizing that he could be doomed at any moment, now realizes God wants to bless him through his grace. He rejoices with all his might. And he pulled, doesn't, he, in fact, in, in, in our passage today, doesn't capture all of it. If you look at uh, two, uh, 1 Chronicles 15, there's a song that David wrote. There's, he, he set up the procession before him, the Levites, to sing, to carry the ark, to sacrifice, that he did all that because he was celebrating with all his might. And we read in verse 16, And as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, looked out her window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now we're going to revisit Michal later in the next section, okay? But today, we, let's focus on the ark, verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his own house. Now, with the fattened ox slaughtered when the ark had taken six steps, with this burnt offerings and peace offerings, what's going on? Is it because David loves a good barbecue? No, okay? It's that he's sacrificing. Now, there's significance between these two. That the first was a burnt offering. And that was the offering uh, meant to atone for sin. In that the whole animal is consumed by fire. The burnt offering sometimes called is the ascension offering because the entire animal ascends on smoke to God. That a life was paid to pay for the price of sin. That's the burnt offering. And then there's specific um, <coughs> uh, quotas that if uh, you're able to, afford a bull. 
If not, a goat. And finally, if you're really poor, two doves. And the whole animal is burnt up and offered to the Lord on, to cover for sin. And we have a peace offering. And this was a free will offering, which means it doesn't, it's, it's up to you how big or how, how expensive of an animal you want to bring. Because it's an animal of celebration of the peace that we now have between a holy God and us. To celebrate and to share. And that's where we have a portion of meat and a cake of bread and raisins for each one. That, it, that peace was given to everyone. And here we come to a principle that we rightly rejoice before God because of His grace. Now that was David's day. Today, Christians, what do we have? God's wrath against sin is just as real. But Christians, today we know that His great wrath against sin was turned away by what Christ has done on the cross. That Christ on the cross was the perfect sacrifice that turned away God's wrath because He took our place. You see, when you really think about it, if I sin against a holy God, why would an animal's life pay for mine? It's different, and it's not fair to the animal, to be honest. It's innocent, isn't it? But this time, when God, and, and this animal, the Hebrew says that it, it's impossible by the blood of bulls and rams to take away the sins of the world. And it's true. But these were just a sign to point us to what God will ultimately do to turn away his wrath. And that is when he sent his own son to take our place, to bear for us. So it's not just Jesus hanging on the cross, but the rejection, the shame, the scourging, the whipping, that all that he endured on the way to the cross and on the cross was what we deserve, no less. That God is serious against sin. That God is wrathful against us doing wrong things besmirching his name, being selfish, that God is righteously angry at that. But in his mercy, he provides a way out because he fully pours out his wrath on Christ so that for us who believe in Christ, we see what Christ has done and in faith trust him, saying that you died for me, Jesus. We become united with Christ's righteousness and Christ's righteousness is fireproof. Because only Christ has the perfect record of obedience that none of us could keep. The perfect obedience, perfect selflessness, perfect love for God. And when we believe in Christ, that's what we get before God. So that we can stand before God, fireproof. Not consumed by His holiness any longer. But rightly rejoicing at His grace. To know that we are facing doom, but to be saved. What should be our response? Can we, can we celebrate it passively? But more on that later. We come to the last bit now, okay? Approaching God in humility. Now, we read in verse 20, that David returned to bless his household. But Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has honoured himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, earlier we saw how Michal despised David in his heart, not because he was uncovered, but by how he was leaping and dancing before the Lord. Now, how do some people take Michal's um, rebuke here in verse 20? So literally, she akins David to one of the, the vulgar fellows or morally empty fellows who reveal themselves, right? 
And many take that to mean that David was dancing naked and David was being indecent, but I don't think so. In fact, in 1 Chronicles, we read that David was wearing a linen robe with the ephod. No. The better way, or the right way of viewing this uh, would be that she was insinuating that David, the king of Israel, is naked. Not of clothes, but of any royal regalia which she thinks is inappropriate. Okay? That he's not wearing his crown, he's not wearing his royal robes, he's just wearing a plain ephod, which is just a plain uh, under, un, under, under cloth that we read Samuel as a boy was wearing. It's the clothing of the youngest, the clothing of the simple. And it's not a short skirt, it's from neck to heel, by the way. It's like the cassock that I'm wearing right now. So nothing indecent about it, but it is very, very base, which is why she says, the, the, the servant, the female servants of your servants. Now again, what does this mean? It's in this society, women had no standing. That's a patriarchal society in the time of David. So his slaves, who owned female slaves, would regard David as lower. So it's like an insult. It's a low-grade insult throwing at David. Now, what was David doing? Uh, sorry, before we get to David. So what was Michal doing here was that she was showing herself as a true daughter of Saul. She's not identified as the wife of David, a position of honor. She's identified with the fallen house of her father. She's a true daughter of Saul in that she was preoccupied with the earthly trappings and she did not see things with the eye of, eyes of faith. But what's David's reply in verse 21? It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince of Israel, the people of God. And I will celebrate before the Lord and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I'll be held in honor. David's reply, I was honoring God because David, in rightly realizing he's in the presence of the most holy and magnificent the King of kings, the Lord of hosts. How dare he presumptuously wear his crown when he is in the presence of the King of kings? You see, David had the right attitude that before God, who are we? We may be CEOs in the field. We may be leaders in our own right. But before God, we are nothing. And David realized that. So he wore a simple ephod not because he despised the robes, but because he wanted to be humble before his God. Therefore, um, he, he, he humbled himself. And then he says, by this female servants, these lowly ones that you speak of, they see with eyes of faith that God is the one to be honoured. So I will be honoured in their eyes. Brothers and sisters, when we desire to honour God, when we come to church in the morning, when the way we use our money to honour God, the world won't understand it. In fact, they will despise it. Why are you wasting your time and your money on the things of a fairy tale, they will think. They don't see things with eyes of faith. And rightly so, in, like Mikhail, they will despise us, perhaps. But we need to have the eyes of faith, like David, to realise that if all the things that we do is for God, it's worth it. It's not despised. It's not contemptible. It is honourable to be giving all that we are to a holy God, to be realising that. And we come to the last verse. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death, 
Now, um, here, it could mean two things. Number one, that David, because of their soured relationship, David never knew her. Never slept with her after that, so she had no children. But we see that uh, it could also, and it's rightly been read also, that it's a sign of divine judgment. That she had no, child, no children before David, and even after that, no children. As a sign of divine disapproval. Now, that's for Michal. I just want to take a side step here and just make that note that barrenness and childlessness have been reversed by God in the Old Testament. That barrenness by itself is not a curse. Okay? That in the New Testament, we see today that um, having no children, barrenness, childlessness, it is not a curse of God in its context. Rightly so, we should not understand that as a curse from God because we have seen how God has used such women for His glory, like Anna the prophetess, who celebrated at the arrival of the Messiah in the temple in Luke 2. But here, for Michal, daughter of Saul, she is rightly judged by God. So, we come to our last principle. We rightly humble ourselves before God. Pride of Michal, the humility of David. David knew rightly who was God. So let's not pride, us, pride ourselves have pride in ourselves or what we are entitled to, like Michal did. We need to acknowledge that God is great and that we are not. That we rightly draw near to God in humble and joyful fear. So how do we do this in our everyday lives? Well, do we compartmentalize God into one small corner? Say, God, I give you this one hour or so on Sunday morning and that's it. Or do we acknowledge God as the true Lord of our lives. That all that we do from Monday to Saturday, and even on Sunday, is all for Him. That our, the way that we work, the way that we relate to our friends, the way that we relate to our families, is all in service to Him. It's all because of Him. That our purpose of our being, that our satisfaction and our joy, we find it in Him alone. That God is holy. And we are sinful, helpless to save ourselves. And we are rightfully in awe of His majesty. That God saved us in Christ when we couldn't save ourselves. So we rejoice in gratitude. And last but not least, we recognize that He is the Lord of Lords while we are but dust. So we live for Him. We serve Him and not the other way around. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for how holy and majestic and great that you are. You would send your son to die for us, that you would be near us, that for all who believe in you, you give us your spirit dwelling in our hearts, that your presence is so near us, even though we don't deserve it. Help us, O oh Lord, to approach you rightly, to not take for granted your holiness or your grace as we live our lives Help us, Lord, to acknowledge you as Lord of our life and not to make the mistake of brushing you aside or treating you with content to, to despise you, O Lord. Help us to not do so. And help us, O Lord, instead to live for you, even if it won't make sense to the world, to be living you and serving you to the glory of your name. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.